take your seats, please, turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3, studying verses 10 through 14. I hope that you bring a Bible with you to Point Pleasant on Sunday evenings. We don't provide them for you. It's always best to have the Scriptures open before you as we reference them together. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10, some of the most famous verses in the book of Galatians. Paul pleading his case. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The most important question. Most important question in the world is simple. That's what we read this morning from Luke chapter 9. It's what Jesus asks His own disciples who do you say that I am? How you answer that question is the most important thing about you. How you answer that question has eternal consequences. How you answer that question should affect everything you do and say and think and feel. The false teachers that Paul is arguing against those that have infiltrated the churches of Galatia and South Central Asia Minor, the Judaizers, I must have lost sight of this central thing. Perhaps they thought they could have a, a different view of justification, how one was set right with God that wouldn't affect perhaps their orthodox view of Christ, the one who saves Perhaps they were not aware that in denying justification by faith alone, they were also inevitably denying a full orthodox view of Jesus. Saying one thing about how to be saved says something about the Savior. And as Paul continues his argument against the false teachers in our passage here, this is where he takes them, this grand emphatic point of Christ and who He became so that we might become sons of Abraham, sons of God. But it's worthwhile before we begin to to get to our text to to remember where we've come from. Broadly speaking, Paul's been making his case from chapter 1 and verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 21, really based upon his own experience. He's sending, uh, you know, he's going with uh, Barnabas uh, up to Jerusalem to have counsel, and he's talking about his interactions with Paul. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, he he really starts addressing the Galatians' own experience. Don't you remember, I came to you preaching Christ crucified. That's who I portrayed for you. I didn't didn't come with a list of do's and don'ts. I gave you Christ and what he's done. 
But as we come to chapter 3, verse 6 and following, where we're at this evening, where we studied two Sunday mornings ago, Paul uh, is arguing based upon Old Testament citation. Remember, this is where the Judaizers surely thought they had home field advantage and high ground. But Paul, verse after verse, is quoting the Old Testament to them, making his case to them. He starts with Abraham in verse 6. And as we'll see this evening, continues to make his case based upon Old Testament argument. Uh, A helpful outline, hopefully, for us uh, are, are three misconceptions which the Judaizers taught that Paul directly confronts with Old Testament citation in our passage. The first thing the Judaizers misconceived of or taught was that works of the law are reliable grounds for justification. This is what Paul addresses in verse 10. Number two, the Judaizers falsely taught that faith and law are compatible means of justification. This is what Paul addresses in verses 11 and 12. And then the Judaizers, in teaching this system of doctrine, end up erroneously teaching that Jesus Christ can be a mere example for how to be justified, a way to redeem yourself, as it were, through the law. This is what Paul addresses in verses 13 and 14. And I hope that as we see the arguments Paul's putting forth, the arguments Saul is seeking to attack, that we ourselves would have our, our understanding and our convictions deepened about the necessity of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So misconception number one, works of the law are reliable grounds for justification. Remember the Judaizers, they came from the big city in Jerusalem and went out to the mission fields of Galatia, teaching uh, the way they, they, they were assured they, they could be right with God, uh, the, the deeper way, the more ancient way. It was to keep the old ceremonial works of the law, that is to uh, keep circumcision and cleanliness laws and Jewish holidays. They were teaching it to have full acceptance, full table fellowship. One had to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws. They were teaching these good old ways could be relied upon. The old paths were to be trusted. They were a firm basis. Do this and this and this and you'll be blessed. And unfortunately, they're not the last to teach this same problematic conception. Indeed, the history of the church is full of those who end up teaching works righteousness, whether intentionally or not. We start with Pelagius in the ancient church addressed by Augustine. Pelagians teaching that one could be justified uh, by following Christ's example, uh, willing yourself to good works and and accumulating righteousness before God and justifying yourself. A bald kind of legalism. Uh, Medieval Roman Catholic sacerdotalism, still taught today, teaches that justification comes by infusion of grace through sacramental or ceremonial works like the Mass and baptism. And even your average modern American evangelical, one of us can easily fall into thinking, I'm right with God when I'm doing my quiet time, when I'm reading my Bible and praying, when I'm showing up to church, and I'm doing my evangelism on the street, and I'm doing this and that. And There are these this works-based righteousness. My, my rightness with God, my okayness before Him is based upon my doings, my performance, my pious activity. And this gets exposed when our, in our thinking, when Whenever we're tempted to think when something bad happens to us inevitably, but God, I've been doing this. I've been following you for 20 years. I've been following you all my life. How could my daughter be sick? 
Or how could I get fired? I've been doing it all. I've been, I've been the only one honest in the whole office. As soon as we are tempted to think that we have something to bargain God with, to leverage him for his own blessedness, we are inevitably displaying our works righteousness. The question Paul ends up asking, addressing to us from the text is, what do you rely upon to feel okay? Perhaps you, you go back to your own uh, opinion of yourself, that you're a good chap, a good moral person, you're a nice person, you're kind, you treat everybody well. Perhaps it's your work ethic. I work harder than everybody else. It's how I make myself feel okay. Perhaps it's your looks. Perhaps it's your social standing or your education, your resume. You are somebody. You are who you are. You justify yourself to yourself and to God based upon what? What do you rely upon? Uh, the best illustration is often used, but it, to me it's still the best. The 1981 Academy Award winning film, Chariots of Fire, the scene at the end, Harold Abramson is about to run the 100-meter dash, and he's telling his trainer before he goes out to run the 100 meters that he has 10 seconds to justify his own existence. 10 seconds to justify his own existence. He relies upon his performance for his justification. This is the natural way of living, the way we all can fall too, all too easily fall into. But Paul explains in verse 10, against the misconception of the Judaizers, against our natural bent, verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Emphasis being placed on abiding and all. James, in James 2.10, puts it clearly. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's what Paul explains in greater length in Romans chapters 2 and 3. Verse 12, he puts it most clearly, I think, all who have sinned without the law, that's the pagans and the Gentiles, the law will, uh, will also perish without the law. And then all who have sinned under the law, that is all the Jews, will be judged by the law. Both pagans and Jews all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul argues. And Paul points out, you know, this, this isn't just his idea, but in fact it comes from Moses. He quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 in verse 10. The point being that works as reliable grounds of justification is impossible and cursed. Your good works, Isaiah explains, Isaiah 64, 6, are but filthy rags. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, again says it the best, trying to get heaven to heaven based upon works is like trying to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. I might say that trying to build up our righteousness to present them to God, to, to give us a shelter from the wrath of God to come is like trying to build an igloo in Death Valley in the desert. You end up in the very myth of Sisyphus, rolling the rock of your own righteousness, your good works, only to have it corrupted and fall down once again. Indeed, it is a curse, a curse of futility. This curse, Paul proclaims, has several layers. Another level, we might say there is a, a psychological curse on relying on works. You either end up rather self-righteous and proud of your ability to keep the law, and a misery to be around. Or you end up totally ashamed, crushed by your, your failures to keep it. You end up walking in either pride or shame, or perhaps 
ping-ponging between the two as you seek to walk the walk of faith and do well for a while and then fall down again. Working or being right before God based upon performance ends up by either pride or shame. There's a psychological cursedness. Or on a deeper, more profound and eternal level, the cursedness of works righteousness is that it just doesn't work. You might be the best guy, the best dad, the best mom, the most uh, wonderful person to work with, that everybody likes. Nobody can say a cross word about you. You might be the most altruistic person, the biggest philanthropist. You might have uh, established 100 hospitals in Africa for nothing. But all those good works still can't pay the down payment on the perfection demanded by the law of God. This is why it's such good news when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go there to prepare a place for you. He doesn't say, you know, if you amass enough good works, I can, get, I can get you in on the deal. No, Jesus says, I go to prepare the place for you. He does it. You see, Paul is saying to the Judaizers and to you, relying on works is impossible and cursed. But he's also addressing the second misconception of the Judaizers. And that's that faith and law are compatible means of justification. This is, uh, in every age, uh, the argument from the legalists that, oh, faith is essential. Faith, you've got to have faith. Faith's important. Don't, we don't downplay faith. We tell everybody how important faith is. You've got to believe. You know, for the works to work, you've got to believe. And as much as they will emphasize faith and its necessity, they will never say faith alone. You see, the addition of uh, the addition to faith of any work necessarily changes or shifts the means of justification, the means of being right before God, of receiving the gift of grace. Perhaps you've seen uh, those promotions of uh, you, get, you get a free something or other with the purchase of a free something or with some purchase of something or other, you know, uh, Whataburger, that um, you know, burger chain out of Texas. They're running a promotion right now, in fact. Uh, you get a free burger with the purchase of a fries and drink. Now, you see, the burger's free. Uh, justification's free. You just got to pay for this other thing. But really, if we're being honest, uh, there, there, there is a price, and it's the cost of the fries and the drink. That's something that keeps you back from the thing, the necessary standing before God. That is what necessarily becomes the necessary piece, the means of justification. So Judaizers are saying that your contribution of law-keeping and your faith uh, as means are compatible. Still gracious, still a gift, still Christ, still faith. But Paul in verse 11, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, says no. Look at verse 11. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified by God, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The two are not compatible means, but in fact, antithetical means, like oil and water, broccoli and ice cream, milk and barbecue sauce. My children last night, after having mint chocolate chip ice cream, finished off the meal with pickles from the fridge. Just, just grossed their grandfather out. Verse 12, Paul pushes it further, quoting from Leviticus 18.5. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You've got to make your bed and sleep in it. It's one way or the other, Paul says. And Jesus puts the point for us himself in picture form. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. 
Jesus tells them, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I must say the wide way is works. The works is the way of every other religion in the history of the world. The narrow way is the way of Christ by faith alone. So justification by faith alone is the narrow way. Few are those who find it. Paul addresses the misconception of reliable works, compatible means, and thirdly and most importantly, the misconception that Christ can be a mere example. So the way the Judaizers would necessarily have completed the sentence in verse 13 would be different. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, what? according to them, how would Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law? Well, by showing us the way of living, of how to live the good life, of how to keep the law perfectly. He proved that the way could be kept. He himself did it. He shows us. He's an example for us. And the Judaizers weren't the last to treat Jesus in this way throughout the history of the church. The Pelagians, uh, for them, Christ is the one who, who puts the ladder down the hole, the ladder of the law, so you might climb back up it for the Medieval sacerdotalists, Jesus shows us the way of infusing grace by the means of his, his supper. Justification by, comes by regular infusion for modern liberal Christianity. Like the Pelagius, Jesus becomes our example, perhaps in a more social, socially conscious form. That if we feed the poor as he did, if we help the needy, if we bring about social justice, be really kind and nice, we will make the world a better place, and that's That's all you can actually hope for, isn't it? Indeed, most religions and worldviews are perhaps happy to treat Jesus in just this way. A good moral teacher, a good example. He, after all, they would say, shows us that self-sacrifice is the way of existential peace. Give your life for others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. They perhaps like the golden rule of the Sermon on the Mount. Good stuff. I personally don't understand uh, if these people have ever, have ever read actually the New Testament. Um, the Christ you encounter in the Gospels is very different. C.S. Lewis puts it most memorably in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept, accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us he did not intend to. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And Paul lays it out clearly and presses it further in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. 
Not an example. Not an example, but a substitute. He became the curse in the same way that perhaps my wife, Abigail Lawrence, became Mrs. Timothy Shaw. That is, legally, that is, within the courtroom of God, he was so identified with the sins of the elect in the courtroom of the judge of all the earth that all the debt and all the guilt and all the shame and all the punishment and all the wrath due to you and the family of God was poured out, imputed to him. He became the curse in the same way that a, a regular old lamb on the countryside of Israel would become the Paschal Lamb on the Day of Atonement, upon which the sins of the nation would be confessed. He became the very sign of curse and death. The Lamb takes on, represents the sin, and then the wrath comes, and the Lamb is sacrificed. Paul explains further in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I said that when we look at the cross... We're not looking at just a, a Galilean carpenter dying an unjust death at the hands of the Romans, nor are we looking at a, an example of how to have existential peace. Become a servant, even unto death, and you'll, you'll be okay with yourself. We are looking at the sign of the wrath of God poured out on your sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, we sing. He didn't just bear the curse, he became the curse. Well, what curse? I say it's the most ancient of curses. It's the deep magic of the Old Testament. From the back, from the very beginning, the curse that if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. There is that injustice in the, in, the, in the third chapter. Adam and Eve, on the day that they eat of it, as God had said, do not die. Death hangs in a curse over them. It's the curse upon Adam and Eve. It's the curse, curses chronicled upon Israel. Prophet after prophet. Moses writes them out in long form throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy. Prophet after prophet come, uh, explaining exile and estrangement from God throughout all the prophets that come to Israel. All the curses of ever uttered against sin, Jesus became, and he picked up the cup of God's wrath and drank it down to the dregs. This is what Paul means when he quotes Deuteronomy 21 23 and verse 13. He becomes the very emblem, the sign. The cursed one par excellence. The the commentators point out that most Old Testament Israel death penalties would have become by stoning. And the contrast would be with what they did with the body after they stoned it. For the cursed ones, they would hang it upon a tree, a dead limp body, the sign for all. Actually, Deuteronomy 21-23 actually outlaws this very practice in contrast with the the dead body that would be carefully taken down and cared for and buried with respect, cared for in the home before it's put into the earth. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? This is an essential understanding of who he is. The one who takes on the wrath of God as the substitute. Jesus Christ is far more than just an example. To see Jesus' only example is to miss the significance of the cross almost entirely. He is the sign of Jonah, as Terry preached this morning. Jonah fed to the sea and quenches the wrath of the sea and saves the mariners. Jesus fed to the wrath of the Romans, saves all those who put their faith in him. Isaiah 53 
foretells that by his stripes we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He bore the wrath so that we might receive the grace. The Judaizers were not only wrong, but antithetically wrong. Their mistakes struck at the heart of Christianity. Number one, that works of the law are not reliable grounds. No, verse 10, those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Number two, the faith and law they had taught were compatible means. Paul says, no, verse 12, the law is not of faith. And number three, they necessarily taught that Christ is not... The Christ is but an example, but Paul puts it for us that he becomes not just the example, but the substitute, the bearer of the curse. So that verse 14, Paul explains, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. R.C. Sproul tells the story of speaking to a Quaker society of friends to give a lecture on the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. And as he's giving the lecture, he is explaining uh, the necessities of the atonement, uh, the theological dimensions of the cross, the wrath of God, uh, the curse Jesus takes, really Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And someone in the back of the room stands up and says, that is primitive and obscene. Dr. Sproul's taken aback. He says, to gather his thoughts, he asks, uh, can you repeat yourself? And a little more sheepishly this time, the gentleman said, that is primitive and obscene. And Dr. Sproul, in his uh, uh, un- unrepeatable way, explains that he was exactly right. Nothing could be more primitive than this substitution. The most primitive and simple sad All the history of the world understands this principle. The principle of every sacrifice made unto the gods is this principle. The principle of a substitution. Someone else swallowing up the wrath they know they are due them. It's the simplicity that every child can understand. Of every age. An exchange of the wrath of God. A payment for sin. And of course, nothing else in the history of the world has been more obscene. More obscene than Christ bearing the curse. Becoming the curse so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? There's no more important question than answer. The hymn writer puts it so well, man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. Did he for me who caused his pain... For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my gods, shouldst die for me? Father, help us to trust your work in our behalf. Help us not to fall into the legalism that so naturally comes upon us. But help us, O Lord, to walk the walk of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and know the salvation you've wrought for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>